things. We can guess. We can say anything we want about how we relate to God or how we perceive God or, or understand God. But let's face it, there's only one thing that really matters on the great day when all the books are opened and our accounts are audited. There's only one opinion that will count on that day, and it won't be our opinion of God. It will be his opinion about us. And there will be a day of reckoning, the Bible says, over and over again, and there will be a judgment. And the part of Romans chapter 2 that we've been looking at addresses some very important issues. Last week, we looked at the uh, important issue of divine judgment as it relates to the man who hasn't really heard God's law, but has a moral disposition. Paul specifically targets, in general terms, the moral individual, the one who sees the world in terms of right and wrong and condemns the wrong. How will God judge that man? And if, he is, if he's never heard, how can God hold him accountable for a law that he doesn't know? Now, we said last time, first of all, that God's standard of judgment for the one who hasn't heard about God's law will be the law that that person believes in. Because everybody has a sense of right and wrong and has um, a sense of justice or fairness or a moral code. If you offend me, then whatever that standard is by which I judge you, well, your action to be an offense, that's a law I've laid down. If you lied to me and that bothers me, and I am angry about that and I feel like that you wronged me, then lying is my standard. That's a wrong thing to do. So I will be judged by that standard. If I end up lying about somebody else or lying to somebody else, God will judge me by the standard I laid out for others with regard to me. That, that's the point he was making. So God will judge such a man by his own Standard That might seem like good news because it takes this huge high bar of God's justice and God's perfect righteous standard and brings it way down here to our level. And so you say, well, that's good because I, I, I can keep that. I don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. I don't have to worry about the Sermon on the Mount. But to tell you the truth, in a sense, it's even worse. Because, you know, at least on a human level, we can all say, well, nobody can keep that. But the reality is, Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. So it's not really good news. He is without excuse and he is self-condemned because he's actually guilty of the same things that he judges in other people. And everyone falls into this category. That in itself shows, I would say, the extent of human depravity, the depths to which we have fallen. It's one thing to fail God's standard. Failing that surely marks us out as evil because God sets the standard. He's the judge of the whole world. But when you don't live up to your own standard, your own sense of justice, your own code of right and wrong, then you really show yourself to be a scoundrel, don't you? And yet all of us are shown up that way. We all do that. All of us are guilty of what we blame in other people. So we stand before God guilty and deserving of his wrath. So he would say we are accountable for what we know, not for what we don't know. We pick up Paul's argument then at verse 12 of chapter 2, and I want you to look at that with me. That's where we stopped last time at verse 11. So let's pick it up at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
So he's comparing and contrasting two kinds of people here. Those without the law, people that just don't know, and those under the law. And those without the law, those who don't know about it, those who are under the law, would primarily be Jewish people in Paul's thinking or context here in the first century, but would also certainly include Gentiles who recognize the divine authority of the law as it's been revealed in the Bible. Notice the emphasis in verse 12 is entirely negative. The Gentiles will perish and the Jew will be judged because both Jew and Gentile have one thing in common. You see what it is in verse 12? Sin. Both are guilty of sin. One has the law and sins. One doesn't have the law and sins. All who have sinned with or without the law perish, he says, or face judgment. And then Paul adds in verse 13, for the one who has the law, um, the self-righteous person, he says, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now there's a very important message here. Verse, silly, verse 13 seems kind of silly to me. I mean, if you really think about why does he need to say that? Doesn't everybody know that there's a difference between hearing a law and obeying one? Isn't that kind of standard? I mean, if you're driving down the freeway at 90 miles an hour and the police pull you over and he says, oh, you can only go 65 here, and you say, I know that. Why are you arresting me? Why are you pulling me? Why are you ticketing me? I know that. It, it's, it would seem ridiculous. And yet, that's what most people do, or many people do, with God's law. They have many people, and if you get into conversations with people, it, it kind of comes out. They don't say it this way, but this is really what they're saying. I know God's law, so I'm okay. They actually believe that because they possess it, or they have a Bible in their home, or they, they went to Sunday school when they were kids, or they learned the Ten Commandments, or that they actually obey it because they know it. And it's really a curious phenomenon of human nature. It shows how self-deceived we are so often. Paul has to say this because many people believe that salvation comes by possessing the law, without regard to keeping it or not. And this takes many forms, but it's almost as bad as saying, I have a Bible, therefore I'm saved from all my sins. It's almost that ridiculous. And I'm sure you've heard the old saying, um, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than you walking into your garage makes you a car. And, it, and it's, it's true. I mean, it's true that many people think that, that that is what makes them a Christian. Why go to church? I'm a Christian. Or I'm this or I'm that. A Jewish person says, I'm born saved because I'm a descendant of Abraham. I don't need anything beyond that. He's got me covered. And the New Testament devotes a whole lot of space to that faulty thinking. Jesus and the apostles all had to fight the notion that just being Jewish advanced you into the kingdom. And, they, and Jesus said over and over again, not so, not so. And remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, if you aren't more godly than the religious leadership, you'll never get into the kingdom. That's what he said. But this is a common thing in Christianity as well. Many people feel that they're on the inside track because they were born in a Christian home or because they went to a Christian school or they went to church a whole bunch of times or they belonged to a certain denomination or they taught Sunday school for 30 years or whatever. None of that stuff makes a person right with God. None of it. I mean, some of it's good, but it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't make you just before God. And it's amazing how many people believe that hearing God's law and saying, yes, that is a good law, in their mind, they actually believe they've kept it because of that. 
It's a common error that people think because they believe the right thing, it's the same as having done the right thing. And it's just not so. Mental assent, simply recognizing the law as the right set of standards, does not save. That does not solve the sin problem. To really know whether one is right with God, one needs to understand the basis of God's judgment. What is he looking for? And on what basis will he judge us? Is it how many times we went to church? Is it how many times we read our Bible? Does he grade on a curve? How will he deal with each person when that day comes? Well, we learn a lot about God's judgment in just Romans chapter 2. You know, you could go through the whole Bible, but there's a lot to learn about it right here. We know from verse 2 of chapter 2 that God judges, quote, according to truth. The New American Standard Bible says rightly. He judges rightly. But the New King James Version has, has a more exacting translation right out of the Greek, according to truth. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things, he says in verse 2. The NIV, I think it says, based on truth, which is also a good translation. So the point is, God's judgment is not based on our notions or our opinions of ourselves. It is based on his moral perspective on our lives. We always think we're more virtuous than we are. We really do. And even when we're real humble and, you know, folding ourselves in the back, and we still think, we're, we're proud of that. We're proud of that humility. You know, I'm very humble before God. I mean, it's, we always think we're better than we are. But God's judgment doesn't deviate in any way from what is actually so. It is according to truth. That's a really important thing to understand. It's neither too much nor too little, it is exact and correct in every way, down to the slightest detail. So when the great books are opened and uh, your life is read out to you, I don't know if that's going to happen like that, but that's sort of the image that's pictured in the book of Revelation. There won't be any mistakes in there. Nothing will be missing either, which is really scary. But nothing will be added either that isn't true. It'll be a very exact thing. It's according to truth. The second thing about God's judgment is it's according to our deeds. Uh, verse 6, it says, who will render to every man according to his deeds, quoting from the Psalms there. There's a subtle but rather important theological point there. We often say in Christian circles that man has a sinful nature, and it's true, we have a sinful nature. That is, we're, it's kind of built into us. We're predisposed to sin because we've, we are fallen beings. Our, our parents fell apart from God, and we are born apart from God, so we already have this disposition to not include him in our thinking and in our, our very being. We have this fallen condition. We're born separated from God. But some people think that's like an excuse. Well, if I'm born with this tendency, it's, it's out of my hands. How can I be judged for that? That's an erroneous thought. That's a, a bad way to think. That's why Paul is so careful in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, to explain that we are without excuse, that we have enough knowledge of God to make us fully accountable to Him. And we do no better. We just choose to go against Him. We and we alone choose to defy Him. But still, we will not be condemned or judged for our predisposition. In other words, we're not going to be judged for our nature. We're going to be judged for deeds, according to our deeds, for actual, the way that nature manifests itself in reality. So you're not going to be judged for things you haven't done. You'll be judged for things that you have done. I, the Lord, search the heart, Jeremiah 17.10 says. I test the mind. 
even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now that's an important verse, Jeremiah 17.10, because deeds are not only what my hands do, they're what is in my head and in my heart as well. In other words, I could hate you passionately and never let you see it. God will judge me for that deed of hatred which is in my heart. That's a deed. That's an action of the will. So when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says the following, you can take him at his word, Matthew 5.21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Then Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or idiot, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the hell of fire. So hatred in the heart is a deed of wickedness. Now that is not good news for the person who is planning to stand before God on the great day of judgment on their own merits. Some people I'm sure have it all worked out what they're going to say. You've got to let me in because I am this and I am that and I've done this and I've done that and all of that kind of stuff. The externally moral man won't be able to plead his external morality if indeed his heart has wickedness in it because God will judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart as well. So third, God's judgment is impartial. Verse 11, there is no partiality with God. This is really the foundation for the text today, starting in verse 12, that you don't have automatic advantages due to accidents of birth. Because you were born in a culture where the Bible is known, does not mean that you, that you don't need to be converted. You do need to be converted. It means you need to have a new birth. It means you need saving grace. Just because you're born in a Christian culture doesn't mean you don't need those things. You need all of those things. God doesn't have favorite nations. He doesn't have favorite races. He doesn't have favorite languages. And right away you say, well, the Jewish people were chosen. That's exactly Paul's point. We're starting in, come next week and we'll talk exactly about that. Verse 17 on is all about that. Yes, the Jews were a chosen people for a special purpose. They were chosen to be a channel of revelation and blessing to the world. They didn't do that very well. But they did provide the right context for Jesus to come along at the right time, which was really their ultimate purpose anyway. So just because they're chosen people for a purpose doesn't mean individually a Jew has any more advantage than a Gentile before God. We'll be talking about that in great detail. So this issue of impartiality is still being addressed in verses 12 through 16. Paul is examining the Gentiles who do not have the scriptures, the written revelation of God. But he explains that they are not without law. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles do not have the law, who do not have the law, do instinctively, or a better translation would be by nature, the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So um, cross out the word instinctively. If you've got an NASB, that's just a bad word. Instinctive means that's an animal word. That's like reacting without thinking. He's talking about nature. That's the idea. And the Greek word is by nature. Verse 14. 
The fact is, although humanity has fallen and separated from God, we all, all of us, every human being in the world, still bear the image of the Creator. Man was made in the image of God, the Bible says at the very beginning. We have reason and we have morals, we have ethics, we have spirituality, we have aesthetics, we have a world to choose. And that makes us like Him. He designed us as persons, like he is a person. We still carry our personhood, even though it's been shattered by sin. Those qualities we share with God by his design, damaged as they may be, are still there. So we still have these qualities. And all of that is to say that right and wrong, morality is bound up in us. That's what Paul's saying. It's built in. We are moral beings. We, we think in terms of right and wrong all the time, even if we're a base, crass, crude person who only thinks in terms of you wronged me. But that's still an idea of right and wrong. It's not you stole from me. Oh, what an interesting happenstance of nature and chance. Random molecules bumping into each other that caused you to steal from me. That's very interesting. That's not how people think. It's you stole from me! We're moral, you see. So this moral aspect of our being serves as a law unto itself. Verse 15 explains, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. And all that means is that God has endowed every human being in their soul, in their heart, in their, the essence of who they are with a, with a sense of right and wrong. There's morality there. God put within them this sense of right and wrong, which is why morals are pretty similar all the world over, because people are the same especially among all the major civilizations, almost even the details are often the same and very similar. Sometimes you'll find a little odd group that has what we might call a bad thing, a good thing to them, like it's good to steal from your neighbor or something like that. But all the major cultures have the same basic morality, and even those people have their own version of morality, people that have some really twisted kind of ideas. Well, verse 15 is very carefully constructed as a sort of a, a court idea. Notice the three key words describing these Gentiles. He speaks of the heart, he speaks of the conscience, and he speaks of the thoughts. Now, a Jew had three elements in their court system. They had uh, the law itself, which was the standard. They had a judge, and they had witnesses. They didn't have lawyers. What a wonderful world. Can you imagine that? They didn't have, they didn't have a, a prosecutor and a defender. They had a judge, they had witnesses, and they had the law itself. Three things. Well, the Gentile has a kind of internal court. In fact, all human beings have this. And that's what he's saying. The law is written on their heart. It's this innate sense of justice, right and wrong. The conscience serves as judge. This is bad. That is good. I did wrong here. I did, I did better there. And the thoughts of the individual are the witnesses, accusing or excusing. So the conscience brings that reality of right and wrong to the mind and the thoughts are determining and deciding um, whether it was appropriate or not appropriate. So the Gentiles have a sense of justice and goodness without a written code. They don't need that to know that there's right and wrong. And that is the standard to which they find themselves accountable before God. So the idea of conscience here in verse 15 explains a lot. Conscience is that moral capacity of our nature, that genuine sense of right and wrong that everybody has. There is no social group anywhere in the world that is devoid of a sense of right and wrong. Everybody has that. Every human being has a capacity for guilt at breaking the laws or the norms of his own culture, his own people, or even his own belief system. So now conscience is real important. 
However, it's not the same as having God's law. What's the difference between a conscience and a Bible? Well, a conscience is not infallible. This is God's word. So when you read right or wrong in here, that is right and wrong, because this, is, this flows out of God himself. The Bible is God-breathed, it says. So this is God's law that is based on his own nature. And whatever God's nature is determines what's right and wrong. Whatever he inherently says is right and wrong is right and wrong because he's the governor of the universe, so it's up to him. When he says something is right, it's right. When he says something is wrong, it's wrong. Because that's his very nature is those things. So the conscience is not like this because the conscience is part of what? A fallen human being. It's not infallible. It's not even reliable much of the time because of our fallen condition. It's not a sure guide. It's not like a Walt Disney movie. Let your conscience be your guide. Not always, because your conscience can be in all messed up. Because Pinocchio, you're a fallen being too. No, I don't know about Pinocchio because he's wood, but other people are. You know, Jimmy Cricket is really not a sure and reliable guide. He's helpful. But even he can be wrong sometimes, if you understand the... Forget all that. <laughs> Forget Disney movies. Earlier we talked about Jeremiah 17.10. I, I, the Lord... Search the heart, I test the mind. Well, the verse immediately preceding that, a lot of you know that verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, not 10, but 9, warns us against trusting our own inner moral compass. And what does it say? Who knows that verse? The heart is what? Right. The heart is more deceitful than all else. The heart of man is more deceitful than all else. Your own heart is more deceitful than anything you will ever encounter. And is desperately sick. Jeremiah says. Who can understand it? That is, we are really tweaked around inside. So that is not a reliable guide. So whenever you have the Disney-esque moral in a, in a film or something where it says, just follow your heart. Well, what, who would follow a, a, the most deceitful thing in the world? What kind of wisdom is that? Follow your heart. Your heart can lead you all kinds of weird places. Unless your heart is firmly firmly rooted in this. By the way, if you're missing Sunday school in the adult Sunday school class, you're making a big mistake because Michael's going through Psalm 119, which is all about God's Word and how you relate to God's Word. It's really, really a wonderful study, a very beautiful study. But um, that's exactly what the point is, though. Conscience is tainted by the fall of man. If man had never fallen, conscience would be a reliable guide. But since we have fallen from grace, it is tainted. 1 Timothy 4.2 actually speaks of those who, quote, by means of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of liars, are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I used to work at McDonald's and when you ran the grill, you had to sear the meat. You know, you push down on it on that flat grill with that spatula thing and just watch it sizzle and crackle. And people do that to their own conscience by means of hypocrisy and lies that they tell themselves. They sear it, they burn it, they scar it over so that it's not functional anymore or so weakly functional and so dysfunctional that it's almost useless. So to say um, to trust a conscience has got to be a serious, serious mistake because it can be deadened or twisted by self-deceits. So our only reliable standard is what? It's God's word. The Christian should have a razor-sharp conscience. And we should hone our conscience 
to be really as sharply pointed as it can possibly be. It's one reason I talk about certain things I talk about a lot because we tend to do things that, that dull and flatten the blade that our conscience is supposed to be. It's supposed to be so razor sharp. We're supposed to be so in tune with God that sin just bothers us. Wickedness just bothers us deeply. But when we play with sin or delight in sin and enjoy sin, it, it takes the edge off conscience. So conscience has to be kept sharp like with a razor because it's based on God's Word. If it's based on God's Word, the more Bible you know, through the Bible in here, the more Bible you know, the more infallible truth the Holy Spirit will have to use to bring to mind so you can determine right and wrong in a, in a more correct way. You understand? The Holy Spirit touches your conscience, but what does He use? What's the sword of the Spirit? What's it say in the Bible? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, right? So the Holy Spirit uses that sharp sword to dig deep and cut around in there and that heart and, and separate out the good and the bad and, and do His work. So the more Bible you know, the more the Holy Spirit has to work with to keep your conscience sharp. Now, uh, we're almost done here. I, I share the opinion of scholars that connect verse 16 with verse 13. It's like verse, if you look at chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 are sort of like a parenthesis or ought to be because they're explaining out a point he's making in the earlier verse there. But if you, I'm going to read verse 13, then I'm going to read verse 16 and you're going to see how they connect together because it's hard to connect verse 15 and verse 16 together. Just follow along with me. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified, verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So verse 14 and 15, I think, act really as a parenthetical statement. And aside, they belong in parentheses because they interrupt the direct flow of information. So verse 13 and verse 16 go together. The doers of the law will be justified on the day when, according to my gospel, he says, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. The key idea is that the just, those that are right with God on the day of judgment, will be the doers of the law. And on judgment day, there must be conformity in action to God's law. Whether his revealed law in the Bible or the law that he wrote on the heart of every man. By the way, verse 16 has a fourth principle or characteristic of divine judgment. We mentioned three of them. This is the fourth one. There will be no secrets. God will judge the secrets of men. So nothing's going to be hidden on that day. Nothing. All must be accounted for. Some people actually believe that they're the only ones that know about certain sins in their life. It's not so. God knows. And on that day, it's going to be broadcast. You know, Jesus said what you whisper in secret will be shouted from the housetops. And it's really true. There's no secrets to God. God knows. He not only knows, but the deed is actually recorded. And on the great day, using that image of the books being opened, all will be revealed. It can be terrifying to actually think about that day. Our, our secrets will be judged. And then verse 13 says, the doers of the law will be justified. Well, this is a dilemma because... I know I haven't done the law sufficiently to please God. So what hope is there for me, right? That's just where Paul wants you to be in this part of the book. And the answer's coming. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a head answer because I'd hate to leave you 
not knowing the answer to that if you don't know. What hope is there for me if I have not kept the law? Because what hope there is goes, frankly, far beyond what we could have imagined. There's all kinds of hope. And the hope is really grounded in this, that God, the judge, loves us. That's a really important thing to have the judge love you. Do you want to go before a judge that didn't love you or a judge that did love you? But what if the judge that loved you was just? And no matter how much he loved you, he had to be just. And when you broke his law and the penalty for breaking the law is death, what can you do? Well, there's only one thing you can do. If he wants to be on our side, and he is because he loves us, but he's just, and he can't just let us go, or he can't give us a get-out-of-jail-free card, or he can't just wink at us, you know, and say, it's okay, it's okay. The record of our deeds is open before him, and it's really clear we owe him this very great debt. We owe a debt to the law. Well, what he did, so moved by his love, was pay our debt himself. And he can do that. Because when the judge pays the debt himself, you can't say that he's unjust. If, you, if the wages of sin is death, and he goes to the gallows for you, you can't point to him and say, oh, that's not fair, you're being unjust. How can you say that about him? Who's willing to give all. So while our sin deserved wrath and condemnation, he took the wrath upon himself and satisfied his own justice in Jesus Christ. That's what the Christian message is. That's what the gospel is. There's a place in the Bible that tells us all about that. I want you to turn there and we'll just finish there. It's in Colossians chapter 1. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay. Colossians chapter 1. Right after Philippians. Jesus Christ, the, the divine Son of God, the creator of the world and the heavens, came among us to rescue us. That's what he's talking about. And I just want to start reading in verse 13. It's talking about what God did. It says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness. Chapter 1, verse 13. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And... Verse 18 says, He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say whether things are on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's our guilt. Yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless 
and beyond reproach. That's the miracle of the cross. You wicked person that you are, me, wicked person that I am, can literally stand before God just. See, Romans 2 is saying you, to be right with God, you've got to be a doer of the law. Well, how can I be a doer of the law? In Christ, I can be a doer of the law because he kept the law. And so he could offer himself as a substitute for us, a sacrifice. So we stand before God. These are the words Paul uses, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You know what that means, beyond reproach? Nobody can say a word against you. So when the book is open and you're in Christ and, and that page is looked at and has a record of your deeds, you know what? It's blank. There's nothing written there except maybe canceled or paid in full or something like that. In fact, look at chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were hard-hearted, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us, not forsaken, forgiven us all our transgressions. And then he says, he uses a great expression, he says, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us. It's like there's this long piece of paper that goes, there's all the decrees against you for all the sins you've committed. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Pay this debt, pay this debt, pay this debt. What is the debt? Well, the wages of sin is death, 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 death. It's a whole long list. And it's like he says, he, he took this scroll of debt, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way and it says, having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Where's your debt? Nailed right there. Taken out of the way. It's amazing. Nailed it to the cross. So if you have Jesus for your Savior, that's where those secret sins go, along with all the others. So all our debt, our sin debt, is marked paid in full because of what he did. So how do I get him to do that for me? You just receive him for who he is. You surrender your life to him. You accept the gift that he offers you because you can't earn that gift of reconciliation. You lay down your weapons. You leave your rebellion behind. You say yes to God. You say no to your pride. And you let him take and hold you as his own. He's got his arms outstretched because he loves you. The judge loves you. And if you just lay down your arms and come to him, he'll be reconciled to you in Christ. Do that and he will not only forgive you, he will change you. He will give you a new heart, a new birth spiritually. That's not pie-in-the-sky Christian talk. It's a real thing. A new birth, a new heart. You'll be different. You'll actually think differently. You'll love differently. You'll be a different person. You'll never be the same again. If you've never received Jesus, what a great day to do it today. Isn't it a beautiful day? What a great day to receive Jesus and be forgiven and, and be a born-again person forever. It'll be a wonderful time for that to happen. Tell him you will have him. Tell him you will have him for your Lord and your Savior. That you want new life in him, and he will give you that. Well, we're going to share in our time of the Lord's table now. And, and as we pray, we'll give you some time to pray while the elements are passed out. That would be a great time for a Christian to confess your sins. And if you don't know the Lord, accept him into your heart today. Invite him to be your Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask the men to come as I pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that in Christ we can be doers of the law. As the great Martin Luther said, Lord, 
we are so glued to Jesus by faith that our sin becomes his on the cross and his righteousness becomes ours before your throne. And that's the great secret. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that everyone here would know that, would know him and the wonder of his salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.